And I trust there'll be some benefit for us to look at that. Let me pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we come humbly to your word. We come in Jesus' name and we come with the filling and the presence and the power of your spirit. We ask that we may see Jesus lifted high. We ask, oh God, that you may speak to us, both generally and individually, specifically as your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Christmas has come and it's gone so quickly, hasn't it? Uh, you can record, uh, Sid. And for us, it's been a bizarre one this year because it's been boiling hot. Oh, and I'm not complaining. No. <laughs> I am not complaining about the heat. It's just great. Uh, but so bizarre. And to see Christmas trees and pictures of uh, Santa's sleigh, uh, it's just really, really weird. But you guys have been great. And I think I said to you in a message, thanks for all your care uh, towards us, uh, being away from family this first Christmas. Uh, you guys have been a family to us. God bless you. Here's, here's what I'm thinking about. Look, Christmas, I don't know if you think about it like this, it's, it's somewhat of an anticlimax. I mean, you never got that iPhone you wanted, the new one. You got a pair of socks, or in my case, flip-flops. I said I wanted an iPhone. Okay? Uh, uh, flip-flops, you call them, what do you call them? Thongs. Yeah, yeah. I told you, it's, it's really weird being in this side of the world. Thongs, okay? Uh, don't say that in Britain, you'd be in big trouble. Seriously. Yeah, okay. Uh, Japanese safety shoes. There you go, there's another one. Look, you know, it, it can be a disappointment, you know, you can, and I don't know uh, what your children have been like, but, you know, oh, is it that? Uh, but it can generally be a disappointment. You know, for a lot of people, it comes, it's a bit of a headache, it's been a big build-up, it's been a lot of expense. Again, back in the UK, you know, people enter into big-time debt over Christmas. Christmas, I'm going to suggest, was a huge disappointment to the first century Jew. Here's what Christmas was meant to look like. I want to show you it's Isaiah 61, and Pam read it for us so nicely earlier. Listen to these words, if you would, with me, uh, please. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. For the Jew, that's what Christmas was meant to be. And there's more. Listen to this in Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen. The cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Christmas was nothing like that. There, was, there wasn't any razzmatazz or sparkle. Well, okay, the stars were 
twinkling, I guess, the, the one at least. But it wasn't quite how it was meant to be. There wasn't a glorious king. There wasn't the overthrow of the Romans. If the Jews hated anything worse than paying taxes, they hated the Romans to whom they paid them to. Seriously. I mean, Jesus came, the Messiah, and nothing changed. The whole thing was incredibly overrated. But this is what it was like. Let me show you. Luke tells us how Jesus, how the Messiah's entrance into our world took place. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own, own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that was the entrance of the Messiah into our world. Can you see? Then that there's, there's, there's obscurity and anonymity. I mean, okay, a couple of people knew about it. The shepherds did, but who the heck cares about shepherds? Stinky. Outcasts. Remember we said that about them? Not about them. If you're a modern-day shepherd, we're not talking about you. <laughs> uh, about the original ones. Unable to enter the temple or to offer sacrifices. And then there were these foreigners. Okay, they knew about it, but who cares about foreigners? if you're a Jew. And so the whole thing is understated, unoverwhelming, and just, just a spectacle of no real significance. A bizarre advent, a great letdown. We have an insignificant family. Think about it like this. An insignificant family give birth to a seemingly insignificant little baby, apart from a couple of people who took an interest in him, in an insignificant little cattle shed, in an insignificant little town. I mean, it's not even the capital, is it? Just little old backwater Bethlehem. And this is meant to be the, 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 the advent of the Messiah. So what's gone wrong? Have a think about it. What's wrong? Why is Christmas, was Christmas, anticlimactic? Because I mean, and we said this before, even the coming of the wise men, it wasn't on his birth. They were like a couple of years out. Why? Someone have a guess. Why was the advent of the king so anticlimactic? You've never heard this before. You're probably just thinking, I haven't never even thought of it like that. Do you want to have a guess? Good man. <laughs> what have I told you? I was thinking, he's taking the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, we weren't going to get there. And thanks, Ralph. If you didn't say, look what's up there, I would have just thought, you know, what a fabulous guy. Now I just think you're a smuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Now look, yeah, oh, yes, yeah, <laughs> it is that. I'm being thrown there, please forgive me. Uh, it is that. The first reason is, look, he came as a baby and the focus was on his birth, but the reality was that the ministry was yet to begin. Unlike any other biblical character, there's overwhelming focus on his birth, and yet nothing happens for at least 30 years. So the overwhelming focus of his birth was naturally because of who he is. And so the first reason is naturally, look, he was later. But even then, well, let me take you to his ministry. He ministered for three years, for goodness sake. I would have thought he would have taken longer. I mean, they've been waiting for him for generations. And he'd been around for 30 years. And then when he finally gets up to do something, it's only three years. And then... And then he doesn't do a great deal, does he? Seriously, think about it. Okay, some people were healed, but this was a vast country. He was on foot, and in three years, running an itinerant ministry, you can't do a great deal. Seriously. And okay, he healed people wherever he went, but he was restricted to where he went. And so even what he did was limited. And as for the Romans... What did he do with the Romans? Absolutely nothing. I mean, so even when he grew up, he didn't quite fulfill the expectation. It's why, can you imagine the disappointments and the disciples? You know, when they watched him die, it's why they abandoned him. He was like, eh? We thought, remember the two on the Emmaus Road? We thought he was the coming Messiah. We thought he was going to do something spectacular. We thought the stuff he was doing in Jerusalem, Israel, was just the beginning. And yet, it never happened. The whole ministry of Jesus was a great letdown. Number one, okay, the Messiah was a baby, he had to grow up. Yes, he did grow up. Luke tells us. That, that when the Lord saw her heart, look, this is some of his ministry, he went up and healed, didn't just heal, he raised the dead man to life, so he did do great things, okay? He did show some of his power, and John tells us, uh, listen to this uh, in Luke 7, here's John's issue with him, and this is what I want to get to in the second part of what I'm saying here. This is John. John's watching what Jesus is doing. He's imprisoned. He's heard of what he's doing. He saw some of what he's doing. And he sends his disciples with this question. Ask the Lord, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? If you think it's just me, that I can't quite get what a spectacular difference Jesus was making to Israel, John feels exactly the same. Can you see? Can you see what's behind John's question? John's asking, hey, isn't that what I was expecting? I was expecting more. What was John expecting? Someone tell me, why is John disappointed? Why is John questioning, could this really be the Messiah? He did, he did, he did, he did. He expected much more than that. This is what he expected. You know, Pam read Isaiah 61. We all noticed all the positive and wonderful things Jesus was going to do, didn't we? He was going to eat of liberation. 
is going to be good news for the spiritually poor. But did you notice in there, in, I think it's verse 2, we'll have it. Oh, maybe I missed it out entirely. Please forgive me. But would you turn to Isaiah 61 if you've got a Bible? Would someone, Pam, you've you got the Bible there. Would you read me those words? Isaiah, it is verse 2. Isaiah 61, verse 2. This is something that certainly John knew. What, what was John missing? Would you read it for us, Pam? Verse 2. And can you see? What was John waiting for? He was waiting for vengeance. Why was he waiting for vengeance? Have you? They were that. And if you read the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the day of the Messiah, was almost always in every account full of wrath. They were expecting the Messiah to bring wrath. On who? Gentile dogs. It's you as well. That's you, George. <laughs> Seriously. And if you think that's just him, it's you as well. Okay, on the, are you a Jew? No, okay, yes, you as well. They were expecting God to come. Yes, to minister to the Jews, but to overthrow the Romans and all Gentiles to establish a Jewish race as the, as the re elite force in the world and to establish his kingdom on earth. And John was confused about Jesus because he's thinking, yeah, I can see some healings, but where's the wrath? And what was he thinking? Where was he when he was thinking that? And John is thinking, well, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, well, what am I doing in prison? Can you see? The whole thing didn't make sense. So the first thing is that Jesus had to grow up. But even with his growing up, he didn't really fulfill expectation. But the real point, and it's the second one, it's up on the screen for you. The real advent of Jesus is yet to come. No one knew that the advent of God was twofold. That's the issue. No one expected that God's coming, the Messiah's coming, would have two aspects to it. And that the first, his birth and his life, was merely the making the pathway for the real coming of God. You see, the real Advent, if you like, the real Christmas is the one yet to come. Acts 1 of 11, Jesus speaking to his disciples. He, he speaks to them and then he leaves them. And the angels say, these men of Galilee, they says, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the way you've seen him. Remember what he said to them in John 14? It's the famous one that we read at funerals. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And what does he go on to say? If I go, I'll come back. So the whole point of Jesus' visitation was to set up, set up his return. And he says he's going to prepare a place for them. Have a guess. Have a look at this. You may not have heard this before. He's going to prepare a place for them so that where he is, they may be also. Was he going to build a house? Yes. 
What was he going to do? How was he preparing for them? He says, I'm going, John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. How was he preparing? Was he building mansions? What was he doing? Someone have a guess. How was he preparing for them to be with him? Go on, but you can finish. Um, You've started, will the mastermind. Yeah. You've started so you can finish. That's half the answer, and, and I'm going to get there, but that young man, through the cross. We sometimes think when Jesus says in John 14, he's going to prepare a place for his disciples, he's going to make some mansions, like he's some kind of builder. No, he was preparing for them to be with him because he was going to... The cross. The only way that you can be with Jesus is through the cross. There's no other way. No other way. He was going. He was leaving them because he was going to the cross, going to judgment. And ultimately then, Sarah, in, in offering himself, let me ask you, who did Jesus sacrifice himself to? And I'll give you a clue. It wasn't the devil. It was the God. He was entering into a communication with his father. He was offering his life as a sacrifice for you and me. How did we get into all that? Uh, we're talking about Jesus coming back. So Jesus has always been coming back. And the real advent of Jesus, the real Christmas, the real finale, the real thing that John was expecting will be fulfilled when he returns. Let me show you what it'll look like. First of all, number one, the real Christ. When he returns, we'll see the real Christ. I don't know if you've grasped this, friends, but when Jesus came the first time, he came as a cute and cuddly baby. That was immense, unparalleled condescension. Remember what we said last week when I spoke to that uh, the lady of, of another uh, belief system about that our God came to us on earth. What was her response? That her God would never humiliate himself like that. It's why we love him. Because our God did. It's why we love him, isn't it? Because our God did. But the point is, that that baby is immense humiliation and condescension. Even the man Jesus, and I think we have to appreciate this, uh, the, the man Jesus that the disciples related to, remember John, seemed to be the closest to him. He lay on his breast. That wasn't the real Jesus. It was a cloak. I want to show you the real Jesus that we'll encounter when he returns. Here it is in Revelation 12. John sees him. John sees a picture of the real Jesus. Not the one that walked with him. The real one. Unclothed now in his full glory. Because I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, he's having a vision. I saw the seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So there was a resemblance of humanity, but he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing with fire. Okay, how close do you get to fire? 
Not very close unless you're silly. Okay, his, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. It's not a character you want to get near. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. On You couldn't see him, you couldn't look at him. And when I saw him, his best buddy on earth, John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why didn't he run up to him and give him a cuddle? Because he saw the real Jesus. And I think we have to get this in our minds, friends, that the Jesus of the nativity that you just want to pick up and cuddle is not the real Jesus. That's a clothed condescension. Not even the man who walked that in itself that's the real Jesus, unmasked as he is. And when John, who knew him intimately, saw him, he was so awe-stricken. He felt, let me say this to you. You know, we sometimes imagine, don't we, if Jesus walked into our church building, we'd be so excited. We'd want to run up and give him a great, if you're in Welsh now, Kutch, as if you're listening in, in Wales, and not the imitation one, you know, the new one, uh, the original and real one. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Right, no. If Jesus walked into this building now, there wouldn't be a single bum on a chair. No one would be running up to him. He'd be down on the floor. You'd be crying out. What did the publican say when he, when, he, when he stood before God next to the tax, the tax collector and the publican and he prayed to God? What did he say? God be full to me a sinner. If Jesus entered our world, hey, I don't know what you think of being slain in the spirit, but there will be genuine slain in the spirit people everywhere. He's an awesome being. And on his return, friends, on his, I had a pair of glasses, here they are. On his return, on his return, we will see him for as he is. Not cute and cuddly, but in his real nature. This is what Hebrews tells us about him. And I know it's not in vogue. And look, we're a church that's Bible teaching, so we won't do in vogue stuff. I keep saying this. If you want a church that's in vogue, this is a wrong church. Uh, this is a Bible-centered church. That means it's never in vogue. It's God-centered. And here's what Hebrews tells us. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with, and, and, and just in case you see, like that's one of those Old Testament churches and that God of wrath. No, it's right directly in the New Testament, quoting Old Testament. With how, how, how are we, uh, I can speak without stuttering sometimes. Uh, how are we to approach this God? With reverence and fear. Why? Because he's a consuming fire. Please, don't call him daddy. He's your God. He's an incredibly awesome being. And yes, there's been condescension in how he's related to us, but it doesn't change who he is. Has anybody ever seen the film Deep Impact? It's one of those end-of-the-world films. Uh, there was two released together. In, uh, Deep Impact, there was another one. Deep Impact is my favorite. Armageddon was the other one. 
uh, when that big hurrah by the world ending, you know, which teaches you don't ever imagine you know when the world will, e the world will end. Because if you did, you know more than Jesus did when he walked the planet, okay? Uh, but in that film, uh, Morgan Freeman is my favorite actor, Morgan Freeman, and he's playing the president. That was ever before they had a black president. Uh, and he's playing the president, and there's this news reporter, I forget her name, I haven't seen the film for years, and, and, and she, he comes to her, they're speaking, and he tells her what she can't do, and then she takes some liberties, and then he reminds her who he is. He goes, look, young lady, he may look like we're looking down the same barrel, but I want to remind you, I'm the president. And you have to put her in a place, you see. And look, here's the thing about God. We may sometimes imagine he's our best buddy. But don't forget he's your God. And if we're to worship him with awe and reverence, he is a consuming fire. So first of all, on his return, we will see the real Jesus. But here's the thing. I should say this before I move on. We may see him in that condition, but what can we be certain of as those who love him? He's, did he say something, Graham? Yeah. We will, nevertheless, and I'm going to deal with this in the last point, nevertheless, be welcomed by him. That's the wonder of it. That's the wonder of it. We'll come to that in a bit. But let me move on. The second thing, uh, let's have a look at the manner of his return. So the first time he came in, in obscurity, poverty, humiliation. But on his return, this is not a pattern of Jesus' life, by the way. On his return, listen to this 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a, I'll try not to deafen you, loud command the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God. In fact, this coming will be so uh, animated, so powerful, so incredible that the dead people in their graves will know about it. Do you realize that? That his coming is so powerful that the dead will know about it and will arise at attention to stand and be judged by the God who had created them. His, the manner of his return will be explosive. No one will miss it. I mean, did you know, if you were alive 2,000 years ago, Lorraine, you look nothing like you were 2,000 years old. I don't mean anything like that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it was just purely you happened to be there when I said that. I mean, if I was talking about Jerry, I might be thinking that. But certainly not you. Yeah. Look, if you were around 2,000 years ago, you would have known nothing about it. Nothing. Nobody. In fact, not even the neighbors knew. Okay? But when he returns, no matter who you are and where you are and what condition you are, you may be in your grave, you will know he's come. No one will miss the return of Jesus. And not only will we know, but here's, look, do you ever get, do you ever get hurt when people insult Jesus? Are you ever offended? Listen to this. When he returns, when he returns, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow 
and in heaven and earth and under the earth. Can you see the geography that's covering? What is it saying about every single person who's ever lived? And there's a bit more on the next slide. And the image, I think there's a next slide as well, is there? Um, no, sorry, my fault. What is it saying about every person who's ever lived or existed when Jesus returned? What will they be doing? They will bow. They'll know who he is. And what will they say? Will they refuse to say no? They will say, it's on the previous verse, they will say, Jesus is Lord. The very mouths that use his name as a swear word, that mock him, trample on it, those very mouths and those very legs will bow and worship him. The only thing, the only thing that's left to ask, really, friends, is, is will we bow willingly and voluntarily now and make him our Lord? Or will, we, or will we bow then when he's forced upon us as our judge? And therefore, that leads me straight into our next one, the effect of his return. Notice the effect of his return. I saw heaven open. Let me just skip some of these verses. Verse, verse 15, he came down. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword which, with which to strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What's that saying about his return? About the effects of his return? What will his return feel like for the majority of the world? Judgment. Look, it's a horrible topic. I have no joy in preaching these things to you. I preach them because it's my calling. It's what you call me to do. When it comes, the whole world will feel divine judgment. If you ever wondered why that's so important, and why we wasted money on these banners, and why we keep going on about it, I seem to point to it almost every week, why it's so important, go and make disciples of all nations, it's because of that. Because when he returns, that's it. It's game over. No more leaflets. Next time we have a leaflet delivery session and it seems like it's too much bother to go and do that Friday evening, there will come a time, friends, you won't be able to do it. Seriously. There'll come a time when you wish you had one more moment to give out one more leaflet. But it'd be too late. Remember what Jesus said? It's in John 9 when he healed the man who was born blind. He says, Night is coming when no man can work. And the real urgency of these friends, I'm not sure we don't get or I don't get. There's real urgency. You see, when the day of the Lord comes, and we jested this morning, I think it was me and somebody else, uh, that says, you know, he may, or yesterday, he may come tomorrow. And I said, well, why tomorrow? He may come today. When the day of the Lord comes and he will come, there'll be no more evangelistic services, no more gospel sermons, no more deliverance, no more leaflets, no more banners, no more church services. 
it'll be gone and it'll be too late to bemoan that we haven't done enough. Uh, so, uh, look, I'm quoting films. Let me quote another one. You, might, you think I live off films, don't you? Schindler's List. Has anyone seen Schindler's List? Do you remember the scene right at the end when he's confronted with those thousand or so Jews that he saved? Can anyone remember what his response is at that scene? He goes to his ring. Let me put this down. Guess his ring. I used to be able to take that off. <laughs> you see, I'm going game a bit. Uh, and, and, and he's weeping. And he's going, why did I keep this ring? That's two more Jews. I could have saved two more Jews. Why did I keep that ring? And then he looks at his car. And he says, why did I buy that car? That's ten more Jews. Ten more I could have saved. But it was too late. The war had ended, Hitler had gone. Six million Jews were exterminated. A time will come, friends, when we will look back at our lives and think, why did I do that? There's five more missionaries I could have supported. That's a thousand more leaflets we could have printed. That's ten more neighbors I could have spoken to. Friends, when the day of the Lord comes, it's the end. And it's a day for the majority of earth of great judgment. And so, therefore, friends, therefore... The response to his return. This is the response we've got to be working towards. Philippians 2, I quoted it earlier. <laughs> For every knee to bow and every tongue to confess. It's the job of the church. I'm sure we understand this. It's our responsibility as a church, friends. It's the one job he's given us. Look, here's the one thing. God was angry enough with Adam and Eve to put the whole planet under a curse because they disobeyed one command. To not to eat from the fruit of the tree. I don't know if you ever thought of it like this. He's left us on the planet and he's left us with one command to make disciples of all nations. And so, look, I know as a church we take that seriously. We moved to this location, we invested huge, and this is a shopping complex, this is not cheap rent. And God bless you. And I want you to first, I want us to encourage you. I want you to know that the money that you've invested in what we used to be called Rivergate Christian Community and now Living Wood Church is doing gospel work on your behalf. Your money is now doing gospel. It's doing gospel work here. It's doing gospel work to 60,000 people who drive past every day. And so I want you to be encouraged, friends. Your money is being invested well. But I also want to challenge you and I. It is our responsibility. It's the command he left us with. It's his last thing. You know when someone's dying, the thing they say last is the most important thing they're saying? Jesus' very last words to his disciples was go and make disciples of all nations. Let me ask you this. Whose responsibility is it to go and tell Afghanis about Jesus? Whose? Yeah, it's your responsibility, Sarah. 
Whose responsibility is it to tell Pakistanis about Jesus? It's yours and mine, of course. You see, it's our responsibility. And you and I can't bank on any other church doing it. You know the whole thing, you know, we all think someone else is going to do it. If we wait long enough, somebody else will tell them about Jesus. You know, I think the approach we have to have to ministry is that we're the only church on the planet. And we have the responsibility of taking the gospel to the whole world. Which, which is supporting mission. But can I challenge you on this for 2019? Have you ever seriously thought about leaving the country? And if not, why not? Seriously, have you ever thought about going to take the gospel to another country? And if not, why not? You know, I have a friend who went to, was a missionary to Thailand. He's now dead. That's what you can expect, by the way. It's why I didn't go there. I came here. <laughs> it was a bit easier. But in all seriousness, he died of malaria. He was warned if he went there, he'll die. He nevertheless went. And you know, he gave a testimony in my home church, the Baptist church back in the UK. And he, and he said, you know, he said these words, do you know why I went in the mission field? I never had any calling. That's what he said. You know why I went? Because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. And so I went. And I gave my life to telling people about Jesus. And he died telling people about Jesus. But when he stands before Jesus, and when Jesus says to him, what have you done with your life? George. Is it George? George, P um, I forget his surname. Yeah, Pierce. We'll be able to stand before Jesus and say, I did what you told me to do, Jesus. And I went. And he'd be welcomed into Jesus' reward. Friends, it's our responsibility. And I know you know it. It's, it's, but it never hurts to rehear these things, does it? It's our responsibility, not only to support, but God. Here's something. I think 2019 may be too busy. If 2019 is too busy, in 2020 we'll do it. We'll go as a team to a country that needs the gospel. Okay? Set some holiday aside. 2020, we'll go as a team and go and expose ourselves to a country that needs the gospel. And maybe we'll get the fire. And maybe some of us will want to go back and live and serve there. 2020, let's do that together. It's our responsibility to get people to respond to Jesus. And the final one, I want to finish with this. And I don't have a clock. I don't know how long I've been preaching for. Probably too long. Please forgive me. Thank you, Jim. The final one. The reward of those who are faithfully anticipating his return. I'm coming to you guys. The reward of those who faithfully anticipate his return. For those who are living faithfully to him. And that's ongoing, present, continuous tenses, friends. Those who are living faithfully to him. Remember, we often say to this church, your baptism of your faith 20 years ago has no relevance whatsoever today. It has to be today's faith. 
for those who are living faithfully to him, in obedience to his word, who are committed to his church, who come regularly, who serve regularly, who are committed to holiness, who proclaim the gospel, these will receive his reward. And listen to this. This is how he's going to look. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to, to grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. They'll rise again just like he did according to the Lord's own word we heard it we heard it uh, says Paul Paul uh, uh, according to the Lord's own word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left uh, till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will come from heaven and with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. What is the greatest reward that the Christian has? Someone tell me, what is the quintessential reward of the Christian? Jesus! Jesus! And if that doesn't sound like reward, you don't want to go to heaven. You'll get bored. The quintessential reward of the Christian is you'll have Jesus. And how long for? It's the reward. It's what it's all about. It's why we're here. It's why he's called us. It's why the planet came into existence. Why he's redeemed us. He wants to be with you. To share his universe with you. The greatest reward of the Christian for faithfulness to Jesus is Jesus. But it's more. It's more, I don't have time to deal with it now, but I've written an essay and I've emailed it to you. So this is a prompt, read my essay. It's my dissertation I did at theological school. Okay, there's rewards beyond that. And just briefly, friends, Jesus never misses a thing that you've done for his kingdom. Never. You see, I haven't, I haven't got a clue what Catherine does for the kingdom. I know a couple of things she does. But all those secret hours, Jesus sees. He knows. And he locks down. And there's a whole biblical teaching on this. You've got to read the essay. But he will reward you for your faithfulness. You see, it really does matter how I live. Because you could use that same thing I've just said about Catherine the other way around. Nobody knows what I do, so I won't do much. And some people do that. When we stand before Jesus, it will be plain what we've done for his kingdom. I said, so the next time you do something and the pastor's forgot to thank you, he probably has, don't worry. Because you haven't done it for him. Who the heck He's a stinker from another country. You haven't done it for him. You've done it for Jesus. And you will be thanked by him and honored by him and shown reward by him for your faithfulness in his work. In all those hours of secret service that no one sees, even your prayer, some of you are great prayer, prayer people, prayer warriors if you like, 
Who sees that? But Jesus. But Jesus. So serve him, friends. And I want to just leave you with this final thought. If you've got a Bible, I do want to encourage you. We're starting the Bible marathon on the first uh, day of January. I'll email and text you the details. We're trying to read through the Bible together in two years. Uh, uh, in conjunction with that, there's some books I want to sell. I'll tell you about that next time. But I want to encourage you, please bring your Bibles to church. Okay, if you like it, use it on your digital device or bring that with you. Okay, but have it on airplane mode so you're not get, you don't get distracted when someone texts you. you know? uh, but bring your Bible with you and try and open it and follow with me. Look, look, we're not, you know, we're not going back to Roman Catholicism where, where the Bible was kept under lock and key and when the priest would tell the people whatever they wanted, whatever the priesthood wanted them to hear. I want you to check that I'm not lying to you. That I'm not misusing the word. Please bring your Bibles with you. Open it with me as I quote text. Make sure I haven't doctored the verses to suit what I want to say. Check it with me. But I want you to turn with me in your Bible if you've got one with you. If, uh, if, I can get, uh, if I get these things on. The thing about getting young, being young, is your eyesight isn't very good. Old. Uh, what do I want to turn to? I want to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter. Uh, if you want to turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if I can remember which covenant is in. It's in the new covenant. It's just before Revelation, just before John, 1 Peter. I want to just read these words to you from 1 Peter. They're lovely. 1 Peter, and if I can find the words for you, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want you to notice that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I want to encourage you, friends. If you love him, then you're his. His return will transform your existence. He'll take you as, your, as his bride, and you'll dwell forever with him, and he'll reward you with all hinges on you loving him. I want to throw this out. Do you love Jesus? One more thing. How is my love to Jesus expressed? Okay, because you might be thinking, yeah, I, I think I love Jesus, but how do I love him? So the first question I'm asking is, do you love Jesus? And the second question I'm asking is, how do we express love to Jesus? Thank you, Terry. I know he's something that is legalism. He just wants us to obey Jesus. This is the gospel of grace. What does he keep talking about obedience? I talk a lot about obedience in this church. It's simply because... That's how love is expressed. You can't say you love your wife if you don't do anything good for her. We can't say we love Jesus if we don't do what he asks. That's not legalism. That's biblical Christianity. Our love is anchored to obedience. You can't separate them. You can't have obedience without love That's Phariseeism, though that is legalism, where there's no real relationship with Jesus. It's just obedience. But you can't have love without obedience. Does that make sense? 
You can have obedience without love and be outside the faith, but you can't have love without obedience. And so in asking, do I love Jesus? I'm asking, is do I express that love daily and regularly through doing what he asked of me? Love him, friends. Help each other to love him. Help me to love him. Let's remind each other to love Jesus.